0: to look at neuroscience and and I think a real growing interest in his his own practice of like how is this working in our minds how exactly is the community involvement the meditation practice the refuge in Buddha, Dharma and Sangha actually transforming and alleviating suffering and so he has uh, evolved into a place where so much of his teaching as you'll see tonight comes from uh, modern psychology modern neuroscience Uh, in conjunction with the ancient teachings. And uh, he's really one of the masters at blending uh, modern philosophy, psychology, transformational practices with the ancient. So you'll get a bit of both tonight.
1: I feel ancient.
0: Yes. (laughs) I will uh, also warn you that Josh is going to lecture first, and then we'll have a short break, and then we'll have a meditation. And I know that that fucks up your game because you're used to (laughs) meditating and then leaving. So I apologize for that. Uh, But there will be a short break. And, uh... Josh Porter.
1: Thank you. So, yeah, when I grew up, my dad was a raging drunk. We are, uh... Uh, my family was Russian immigrants um, and uh, when he got sober, my dad who hated all religions uh, the only way he could survive in the 12 step arena was to uh, adopt uh, what was always interesting to him, a Buddhist practice so suddenly in 1973 when I was 12 years old there were all these Buddhist texts that showed up and My dad would have all these cushions, and I'd say, Hey, Dad, what's going on? He'd say, Shut up, I'm meditating. (laughs) I was like, Okay. But he seemed to be a more, let's just say, regulated human being. And uh, on the other half of the bookshelves, my mom was um, really so heavily into psychology. And from a very young age, I didn't really discern that the Buddha was anything other than one of the most important psychologists who ever lived. I always read him from that angle. I didn't read him in terms of any kind of mystical or religious context. And if that's your belief, that's fine. I'm not in any way saying that the way I uh, interpret any of this is correct, but uh, far from it but i've never been able to view the dharma outside of the lens that it is a very practical psychology to help us address some of the manifold ways we cause stress and suffering in our lives and uh, so i sort of threw together a talk and i trying to cover a bunch of the different just a few of the many many different Buddhist psychology themes that I addressed in the book, so it might be a little bit rambling, but hopefully it'll seem coherent, because I'll be the one person up here delivering it in a rather neurotic Jewish New York voice, so (laughs) it'll sound like it's got a kind of underlying message to it. Um, (laughs) So... My first note says, Capitalism Bites, and literally it says that here, so it must be true. Um, Capitalism uh, enshrines goals that lead to emotional isolation from each other. It rewards financial security, achievement, careerism, workaholism, awards, and especially maintaining and curating a wonderful reputation and recognition from peers. In other words, it um, pushes us towards uh, framing our behaviors in a very rigid social mask, to perform in front of each other in the peer-to-peer interactions that we have in our lives. None of those dopamine rewards, which give us very fast sense of uh, neural boosts, uh, last. And they don't produce fulfillment or lasting happiness. When you post something on Facebook and a bunch of people like it, it feels good for maybe 15, 20 minutes. Likewise, when we might go to a store and buy shoes or... We might tell a joke that friends might like, or we might get, uh, we might do something very well at uh, 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 work that is not fulfilling, but it might be enhance our reputation. And again, all of those essentially rewarded with very short-term boosts. It feels good for a little while, and then it goes away, and we're left with. Uh, the sensations of cortisol and uh, a set of choline that are released after the dopamine boost. The Buddha talks about this in a sutta called The Eight Worldly Winds, where he says that uh, the world pushes us towards things like fame and financial security and uh, people-pleasing and uh, monetary gain and... uh, that all those things then, when they dissipate, leave us with feelings of uh, lack, obscurity, lack of recognition, financial loss, etc. So, the more we chase after these, uh, the very currency of uh, the free marketplace that we live in, the more we just get caught up in what's called in psychology a hedonic treadmill. Uh, fascinatingly, they, Kahneman and uh, Martin Seligman and Sandra Liamoborski, some wonderful uh, clinical psychologists, did tests of how long and how much of a boost we get in self esteem and fulfillment and happiness. And they found that if you win the lottery in about I think it was six months, your baseline happiness returns to exactly the place it was before you won the lottery. Likewise, if you suddenly become disabled in a car accident, they found the exact same thing. You don't actually have a, an appreciable diminution of your baseline happiness. So what does lead to a lasting, meaningful boost of happiness, fulfillment, and purpose in life. Well, their studies pointed to two things outside of genetics, and I'm sorry I can't do anything about your genetics. I certainly can't do anything about mine, and uh, I wake up every morning seeing the results of that. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> there are two things. One is um, we need a group of friends that essentially are there to help us co-regulate. Human beings are a social species. We are a species that need other people to regulate our emotions. We do not regulate our emotions in isolation. It is not possible for our species. We are set up to stay activated until we find a friend that we can be truly honest with. And as we express our experience Non-verbally, parts of the brain that are largely functioning automatically behind consciousness are reading each other's body language, tone of voice, facial expressions, while the left hemisphere listens to the words. And in expressing our emotions and being seen and have somebody mirror our emotions back to us, we regulate down. And that actually is what creates the greatest boost to well-being, they found in the studies, having a core group of friends that you can be radically authentic with, which means simply expressing the state of being that you're experiencing internally to someone so that they can share the experience. The second thing we need is uh, a positive sense of tribal membership. We are not only a social species, but we're very much a tribal species in the sense that we have social circuits in the right anterior cingulate cortex, which literally, if you read the work of Lieberman and his book Social, shows that when we feel excluded or we're not a a part of a tribe that is giving back and helping others, um, we tend to experience a diminution of serotonin, and we start to feel stressed, depressed, and we start to feel vulnerable, we don't feel secure in our lives, when we do feel that our work is meaningful and that it in some way directly benefits the welfare or peace of mind of another person, and we see that, it can't be theoretical, we actually have to see that our livelihood in some way is benefiting others, that actually... Tricks or trips, I should say, the anterior cingulate cortex to raise serotonin and to, dim, to essentially diminish the amount of anxiety and pain that we tend to have when we don't feel connected to others. So it's not terribly hard to know this. If we did an exercise where we closed our eyes and I asked you to think of the actions that you took more than five years ago that you remember and bring you a sense of fondness or a sense of self-esteem, you would almost certainly bring up an action that was not selfish, not about uh, winning or accumulating money or buying a house. You would bring up something that had to do with bonding and connecting with others. If I asked you what would you tell a child is the most important thing to focus on in life, you would tell the child probably something that had to do with these core values. It's more important to be authentic, connect with other people, and to do something of value to help the world and leave it a better place. If you got the opportunity, I've done hospice work, and I work in a hospice training center, and if you've ever spoken with somebody who's in the... Uh, last processes of life, you'll hear the exact same themes again. So if we know this and we go back and bring up memories of those actions that brought us the greatest amount of connectedness and uh, peace of mind, we would have a very good track of what would be a meaningful path for us in life. The problem, of course, is that capitalism doesn't push us towards the, uh, the connecting, bonding, uh, meaningful. In fact, those livelihoods pay the least. They're very often the hardest to find any work in. They're very often, when people do get work as a social worker, and a lot of my friends are in that, uh, they tend to have very long, stressful work hours. We tend to punish people who want to give back. Still, though, it's worthwhile to choose an authentic path in life, by which I mean a path that connects us meaningfully with others and that we can see makes their lives better. When I worked in advertising, I did. (laughs) Uh, I worked in advertising. My mom was in advertising. And she told me one thing, don't work in advertising. So, of course, I did it. And uh, when I met, no, I was deeply, deeply unhappy. In fact, I had had a clinical depression uh, directly after 9-11. And I was uh, just absolutely miserable. And when I would go to people, friends in advertising, and ask them what are we doing here? What is the fucking purpose? The labyrinthian justifications that would come out. Well, you know, we're bringing the word to other people about a soap that oh, will make that them clean. Is. And I was like, yeah, but every soap is the same as every other soap. We're not doing anything. No, but we're this migraine medication that we're selling, that we're bringing it to people with migraines. And then I... Went to the meeting where they we were so we were they were giving us like the I thought okay great I'll work on the migraine like pitch so I went in there and, and I asked something that you're never supposed to ask in advertising which is excuse me does this really work
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and you get these looks like who the fuck let him in the room <laughs> and they said well actually we found that. 5% have a placebo reaction, the people who are not on it, that's positive. 7% of the people who are on this medication uh, felt their migraines were bettered or were lessened. 7%. That's what I was working for. Some over-expensive medication that, that was making seven, one out of every ten, less than one out of every ten people who used it was getting any appreciable result. So I had to quit. I had to quit. I went from, here's a career trajectory for you, I went from being a successful art director to living off of donations, teaching the Dharma, and... Uh, offering spiritual counseling for donations. I literally am like, almost, I have a hat out, practically. That's what my life looks like. It made no sense whatsoever. And yet, even though I knew that this transition would make me fulfilled and happy, because I knew of all these studies, and I knew I just couldn't work in advertising anymore, I was terrified to make this journey, this transition to doing something that was meaningful and risky. And I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, why it's so difficult to make authentic changes in life. The first is that we all interject in early childhood the voices of our uh, caregivers, not generally the upbeat, because we have uh, what's called negativity bias. So we tend to only introject, which means internalize, the most negative frightening, scary, instructive statements by our parents telling us not to speak when other people are, you know, not to run, not to dance when you want to dance, not to be silly, not to run and, you know, not to, you know, do natural, spontaneous things, in other words. And we carry around this introjected series of our parents' worst hits Uh, in our head as a playlist and whenever we are in experiences that are new and novel that require risk that's when this inner critic or what Freud called the superego the socializing introjected voice of social expectations rears up. Why is that? Well we use that voice in psychology it's called a titrating Process. We use our inner critic as a way to guide us through life when we feel overwhelmed, frightened, when we don't know what to do, when we feel we're taking on challenges that might be difficult, we start to hear the comparing, judgmental, negative voice. So that's one reason why it's so difficult. We all have in us some voice that says, but how are you going to make money? <laughs> Maybe yours is not in an uh, Upper West Side Jewish voice, like my mom's, but it says probably the same thing, though it doesn't sound like it's on Seinfeld, probably. Um, the second, uh, and, you know, second, let's look at the Buddha's psychology. Uh, every time in our lives we experience dukkha, which means suffering, stress, there's a a whole series of underlying latent tendencies the Buddha called anusayas that record the incidents and essentially guide us away from repeating the events. And one of the things that the Buddha suggested that was absolutely brilliant is that whenever we encounter something that we associate with dukkha, because in the past, speaking in a large group led to a disastrous, embarrassing experience, so we might not like speaking in public. And so whenever something reminds us of an event that caused suffering in our lives, we start to feel what he called Vedana, difficult, painful, negative feelings. That's your midbrain. And then we start to experience negative emotions associated with Tana, trying to crave to cling on to something different than anything that's risky or dangerous. So what do we cling on to? The Buddha said we cling to four things. We cling to financial gain, you know, pleasures, things that feel good. We cling to rituals and routines. You know, I get my iced coffee in the morning at exactly this time and I walk to work this way and I have my desk exactly so and then I do this at exactly that time. And then we cling to our views and opinions about the world and the way it should be, and we cling to our views and opinions about ourselves. All of these beliefs ossify, and eventually over repeated practice lead to the most incredibly limiting perspectives on what we can achieve and do with our lives. So we all have within us these very deeply encoded routines that guide us away from anything that might involve change or risk, and push us towards things that seem to be stable, like a career that uh, looks good to other people or putting on a very pleasant face for other people. The third reason, and I'll stop at three, don't worry, I know this is a lot to digest, but I might as well throw out all the reasons it's so difficult to make meaningful changes in your life, Mm -hmm. is that we have two minds, not one. But two, you might have noticed if you were at any point a Dharma geek, the Buddha uses two words for mind. One is called citta, which is the emotional heart-mind. And the other is sometimes referred to as damas, the realm of interpretations. Other times he called it manas, like yonisa manasikara. Manas means the mind that produces thought. Okay, so we have one mind that thinks and has views and opinions and thought, and we have another mind, citta, which, if you know the third foundation, that mind focuses attention. It makes it attention broad, or it makes us anxious, it makes us craving, it makes us averse, it makes us tranquil, in other words, the entire quality of attention is, is guided by this cheetah. So why would the Buddha say we have two minds? Well, if you haven't guessed, the big news is, is the brain actually has two hemispheres. And the two hemispheres over the course of evolution have become increasingly separated. The, the thin neural thread, the corpus callosum that connects our right to our left hemisphere, has become over evolution smaller and smaller and smaller to the extent that human beings live almost entirely in their left hemisphere once they are past five years of age. And the right hemisphere gets pushed into the background. Now what do these two hemispheres do? Well, it turns out almost exactly what the Buddha suggested. The left hemisphere is the po- your brain, it represents all of your experience in a story or an interpretation. You came here tonight to Against the Stream, you saw a lot of people, there was a lot of shit going on, a weird guy with tattoos talking about a bunch of different odd things, there was different sensations, and your left hemisphere turns that all into a story, and it symbolizes it. And some neuroscientists say the left hemisphere turns the rich, world around us into maps that are very simple representations of the world. They're not the world itself, they're a representation. The right hemisphere, on the other hand, is largely non-verbal. It can't generate language. It can only really well understand metaphor. It specializes, it speaks to us through the body and through attention. It makes our attention open or anxious or tranquil, it expresses its needs that way. The left hemisphere, which is based on thought and represents the world, pushes us towards increasingly isolated, emotionally disconnected, dopamine-rich rewards. Money, pleasures, accumulation, goals that, uh, that look good to other people. That's what your left hemisphere is most focused on. The right hemisphere deeply rewards connection, secure connection with other people. The work of the great Alan Shore shows us that all of the uh, the emotional processes that make our decisions for us, and we are are very largely emotional beings when it comes to behaviors, are guided by a part of the brain, the orbital frontal, that keeps track of how well connected we are. And when we feel securely connected to other people, we take open, ambitious, risky, we embrace life. When we feel insecure, when we don't feel there are people there that will listen to us, express our authentic emotional experience, the right hemisphere pushes us away. It causes fear and panic. And it causes stalling and procrastination. People uh, tend to believe that procrastination or perfectionism are um, weaknesses of character or something like that. They're not. They're simply signs that the right hemisphere is telling us, I don't want to do this. This thing that we're taking on, I don't want to do. It can't speak to us, so it uses whatever capability it has to get its Needs known. So, given that we live largely in conscious life, in the left and the right becomes the the uh, the left is the dominant in day-to-day life, and the right only has its say when we're dreaming, or very early in the morning when we are most bilaterally balanced. The great Ian McGinnis, who wrote *The Divided Brain*, says that as capitalism and our culture has gone on, we've become more and more and more left-brained. We tend to isolate ourselves from others. We tend to look for things that provide short-term pleasure and isolation. We tend to believe in the hype of capitalism the more culture has pushed us in that direction. So how do we then make these big, important, authentic, meaningful, fulfilling changes in my life. How do we quit that job? Yay! I love it when people do that. <laughs> I'm the only spiritual counselor or counselor that I know of that when somebody comes in, I work with about 50 or 60 people at any time, and whenever uh, somebody says, guess what? I quit my job! It's happiness. <laughs> Just complete happiness and joy. I, if I drank, I would Poor champagne. Uh, and a lot of the, this uh, ridiculous book that I wrote is about, uh, you know, Buddhism in the West has become so friendly to isolating practices. Uh, while meditation is essential and important, in the West we believe that meditation is Buddhism. If you're Buddhist, you meditate. If you travel to Thailand, which I've done on a number of occasions, many people there don't meditate, but they all connect deeply, meaningfully with each other. And that's what makes them so happy. There was a study that was done by, I think, Jonathan Haidt, where he compared a bunch of rich white people living in San Diego and gave them the baseline happiness test, and he compared it with a group of very poor black women living in Buffalo, and they expected the rich people living in a sunny area to be significantly happier in life. Actually, the poor black women trounced, the rich, white people. Yay! I like that. Uh, why? Because all of the women in the, s- in the group, the survey, were in very close-knit Baptist communities. They went to church together. They did. They made cakes together. They hung out together. They knew each other. They knew what was going on in each other's lives. That was the key. So... What to do? To make big life changes, one, yes, we do need to prioritize finding secure friendships, what the Buddha called Kalyanamita. The Buddha said in the Sutta that is the prerequisite of the spiritual path. Having people that give what is hard to give and do what is hard to do. People who listen to your secrets without judging them, or sharing them, people who share their secrets with you, i.e. their internal feelings, people who don't abandon you when you're in need, or and people, he said, who even listen to harsh, painful words. In other words, people can, who can create a safe container when your emotional state is highly activated and you're in great despair or anger or frustration or fear. That's what Kalyanamita is. If we get that, we have a secure base. And a secure base is what allows us to take those risks. Because if you know there will be people there waiting to co-regulate, that's the fancy word, listen, and emotionally soothe you when you are disappointed when it's long and hard to switch a career or take new classes or learn new skills or to move to a place where you feel more connected, that's what will make you feel safe and secure. Not money. Not having a lot of stuff. But it's the connections with people. We naturally... Our brains are literally set up to move into the emotional state of being of the people that we're with. So even if you're deeply disappointed in life, an emotional connection will naturally soothe you or regulate you. The second thing, of course, is to develop what's called distress tolerance, and that is being able to be with fear and worry and the doubt that will come up. And rather than trying to argue with it, which is the mistake that we all make, is to simply see and allow the fear, the doubt, the self, the lack of self-belief to be there, bring the awareness into the body, find where what the Buddha called the Vedana is. And if we can stay there, the Abhidhamma, the commentary, say that's the magic way out. Of the cycle of stress if you can stop it right when you find the feeling in the body and hold the feeling don't push it away don't judge it just be with it and learn to soothe it by breathing and by relaxing the body then you can actually move into difficult arenas difficult Upper, you know, risky opportunities, and you can feel the fear, and rather than trying to argue or shame or justify or push yourself or uh, in any way give in to those uh, tendencies of internally barking at ourselves, we simply cradle and hold the fear and soothe it, much like a mother with a child. Generally, you'll find that people who had a secure attachment in life find it much easier to make big life changes than people who have insecure attachment, especially those who are avoidant or disorganized. And finally, the last key is to do what I call uh, inner child practices in meditation, to connect with the inner child, to soothe it and to let it know that we will not allow it to have the same experiences of rejection and abandonment that it experienced when we were younger. Very often in life, when we were first going to schools, we would encounter peers. And if we did anything that was different, anything that was meaningful to us, if we acted in any way spontaneously or true to our feelings, we get laughed at and judged and criticized and shamed, and humiliated. And so we all carry that inner child that still believes that that's what's going to happen today. Because the right hemisphere is not time-stamped. Emotional experiences from the past are still, still experienced as if they could happen today until we address them directly and soothe them and integrate them into our daily lives. So, the meditation is going to be about the last two distress tolerance and working with the inner child. Great, okay. <laughs>